1: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going.
0: If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. As it is, we're not sure month to month if this is going to keep going.
1: If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics we don't have time to cover in our longer episodes, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests.
0: As a member, you could get a new episode from us as often as once a week. Go to patreon.com ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun.
1: We know times are tough for everyone, and we appreciate your support.
0: Helios is watching you masturbate!
1: When Eris first tossed that thing into the crowd you caught its flash of gold. You thought it was such a little thing, something far too small and far too fine to start a war over. A golden apple, a trinket, insignificant, or so you thought at first. But then, peering through the crowd, you looked closer. The gold in the torchlight held the history of a thousand sunsets and the unmaking of a million lives. But it wasn't the way the apple sparkled. It wasn't the things you almost believed you could see in its fine, hammered shape. It was the writing. To the fairest. To the most beautiful. It could only belong to you. You reached for it, and so did Athena, and so did Hera, stepping forward to claim what was yours. You swore right then you'd pull down the heavens to make them see the truth. But Zeus stepped forward, he picked up the apple, and cradled it in his large hands. He looked at each of you in turn, and proclaimed that this judgment was not his to make. That when a suitable judge could be found, each goddess could put forth their case. But in that moment, his eyes found yours, and you knew it was only a formality. Of all the goddesses vying for the apple, only you knew exactly what he lusted for not a beautiful body, not a pretty face, not the quick, rough passion that usually soothed his fragile ego, but war, decimation, blood and battle, and yes, there was lust, a lust he had never known before, a lust you had shared many times when you walked the battlefield with your lover, Ares. You understood Zeus down to his darkest depths. Hera and Athena glared at each other. When they muttered curses and insults, you already knew they had lost. You just had to be patient, and patience was a passion of its own, a slow, endless burn that was so very satisfying once it was sated. Years passed. The apple haunted your dreams. It colored your desires. It was all you could think about. Nobody spoke of it, but you knew it called to the others the way it called to you. The apple would not be forgotten. Then Zeus found his judge, Paris the shepherd, a lowly peasant boy, barely old enough to grow a beard, but handsome enough, with a smile that promised wickedness and eyes that told of broken vows. You could not help but smile. This was the kind of man you could work with. Paris was anxious to stand before the three of you, and he was shameless in his flirting. His eyes kept wandering between you finding each of you more lovely than the last. But his gaze never stayed too long on you. It was as if you were the son to him, and he feared to stare at you full on. Hera put forth her case first. She promised Paris obscene wealth, power, and privilege. She promised him a legacy, a happy and prosperous life. It was the kind of promise that an older man would have found impossible to turn down. But Paris with his cheeky smile and strong arms had known too few winters to understand the gravity of her offer athena promised him a life of honor and valor and glory undefeated on the battlefield she offered to make him a hero to rival all other heroes it was an enticing offer the kind of offer another sort of boy would have found irresistible but paris was too handsome to have had to prove himself amongst his peers He had been clever and strong and lucky. He had no desire to prove his might or skill. Not to other men, at least. Then you approached him, and his eyes found yours, and he was lost. You smiled, and you saw right down to his core. You knew in that moment what he wanted, and you promised to give it to him. The love of the most beautiful woman in the world. Paris was silent for long moments, lost in your beauty, lost in the image of himself that he saw in your eyes. When he spoke, his voice was slow and syrupy, like honey left out on a hot day. I choose Aphrodite. Thus Paris made his judgment. The apple fell from Zeus's hands and into yours, where it always belonged. Hera and Athena were furious. They vowed vengeance on the Trojans. They would make this boy miserable for his decision. They would rip apart the world. And thus Zeus got his war. But you held the apple in your hands. Your mortal judge looked at you with dazed adoration, as if there was nothing you could not do, nothing you could not give him, as if there was no one more beautiful in the world than you. And you knew that this is what Athena and Hera failed to see. Beauty, real beauty, is tied to desire. And to understand what is beautiful, you must understand what one desires. I'm Jen McMenemy with the very gravelly voice today.
0: And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So hi,
1: everyone. First off, I don't know why my voice has gone all gravelly. An Eartha hit sex hotline. But apparently that's what we're going to have this episode. I think I might be losing my voice. But, in good news, I'm just going to say it right now, it's happening! (laughs) I am so excited because today we get to take a deep dive into the mythology of Aphrodite. So, every season we find something in history that is so tied into the mythology that it begs for its own episode focusing on the folklore and myths. And when Jenny mentioned we'd be looking at the cult of Aphrodite and sex workers in ancient Greece and Rome my little mythology-loving brain started turning.
0: Jen was really mad that I did not include more mythology in the Cult of Aphrodite episode, which was not supposed to be about mythology. But that's why we were like, you should have your own episode that's just about the mythology.
1: Yeah, so Jenny did the primary research on the early episodes in the season. She did the Cult of Aphrodite and all the Sex Workers episodes, which I just think are some of the best episodes we've ever produced. And she was doing that because I was working on the series, because Jenny works really far in the future and I work much closer to Deadline. Yes, I'm a procrastinator. I don't know what else to say about it. While Jenny was telling me about her research and we were looking into the stuff that she'd done, I just kept getting like, oh, do you know about this thing in mythology or this thing in mythology? And did you put this in? And eventually Jenny was like, no, I'm not putting this in because that's not what this episode is about. If you really need to tell me how the mythology ties in, just write the episode and we'll see how it fits. So that's what I did. (laughs) And now we're getting ready to dive into the stories of Aphrodite. So here's a little warning about what you're going to get in this episode. Number one, we're absolutely not covering all the myths about Aphrodite. There are so many that I could just do a dissertation over the next decade and not cover them all. And we're going to look at just a few. It's about three myths surrounding Aphrodite and how they tie into our episodes on sex workers in the ancient world. We're not going to look at things like Aphrodite's children, like Cupid and Psyche. We're saving them for a little later in the season. And we're not looking at Aphrodite's interactions with mortals, particularly Helen of Troy. She's getting her own episode later in the season. What we're doing here is we're putting together a thesis, if you will, of why Aphrodite was one of the most powerful and destabilizing goddesses in the Olympian pantheon and why the stories that were told about her show us how the ancient Greeks felt about women, love, lust, and their society. So join us for a mythology-packed episode that we hope will demystify the goddess of love.
0: We've talked extensively about Aphrodite's origins, and if you want to hear the story of where she came from, castration foam was involved, then listen to our episode on the cult of Aphrodite.
1: Well, that's one theory. There's also another theory that she was the daughter of Zeus and a goddess named Dione. That's another one, but we really like the castration foam one. So while that one exists, everything we have here is going with castration foam.
0: Our Lady of the Castration Foam. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're not going to retell her whole origin story because we've got too many other myths to discuss. And frankly, we've already done it in the Cult of Aphrodite episode. And we've also talked about this on one of our Drunk Myths episodes with Liv in the Patreon. So the short version is that Aphrodite arose from the sea at Cyprus. She was a goddess born from the castration from from when Kronos cut off his father Uranus's bits, because that's how the gods roll.
1: That's how you take control, man.
0: To say Aphrodite makes quite the entrance in mythology is a massive understatement. She appears onto the scene as this epic character, born from the sea foam, rising from the castration foam and the spray of the sea, and all around her the small creatures start fucking, the earth blossoms and blooms. She is literally a physical embodiment of fertility and getting it on, and I think Cathbad the Druid would be very interested in this myth.
1: He would be so excited. He'd be like, it's a great day for getting lucky when Aphrodite comes to town. That's actually an accurate theological statement from Cathbad the Druid. All of his statements have to do with fucking. So, you know, (laughs) eventually he's got to be right.
0: Um, (laughs) However, perhaps this makes total sense to you, but we'll explain why it should make total sense to you knowing who Aphrodite is. Aphrodite's marriage was kind of fucked. The first myth we're going to talk about is the problem of Aphrodite and Hera, and Ares, and Hephaestus. It is a truth, universally acknowledged, that a woman with agency and without a husband is a destabilizing creature. I know Jen is very proud of that line, which, yes, is from Pride and Prejudice.
1: Yeah, I'm so proud that I got to work in a Pride and Prejudice reference. So, yeah, and you read it so well. I don't think I could have read it that well. Guys, I don't know what's going on in my voice right now.
0: I think it's kind of sexy. I think you sound very... Aphrodite ish in, in the lower register.
1: Maybe Aphrodite is being channeled through my sexy, sexy lower registered voice. I don't know.
0: Enjoy it while you can because her voice isn't always going to be like this.
1: So, what do we mean by destabilizing? Ancient Greece and Rome were both highly patriarchal cultures. They believed in the primacy of the male head of the household, and women were more or less treated as property under the law, although laws varied at different times and in different places. So, this is very much a generalization. But no matter where or when, most women lived their whole lives under the control of a curios in ancient Greece or a Pater Familius in ancient Rome. This is true for most women, but not all. Some women fell outside of that paradigm. One type of woman who did were the hetire, the elite courtesans of ancient Greece, who could control their own money and have their own households. But hetere were dependent on men, wealthy clients for their income. And this could be destabilizing to the family unit.
0: Wives and other women in a man's household were also entirely dependent on men for their food, shelter, and financial well-being. So if their husband or Kyrios, this didn't have to be a husband, it just was the male head of the household, was also financially supporting a favorite Hatira, that could be seen as threatening the other women's financial stability.
1: Yeah, and by male head of the household, we mean your brother, your uncle, your uncle dad, your dad, or your husband. It didn't have to be someone you were married to.
0: That's right. For those and other reasons, single women, um, like Hatire, were seen as a threat to the Greek and Roman family unit. That is our thesis here. It's kind of how the patriarchy pits women against other women. And Aphrodite wasn't a Hatira, but she was the patron goddess of heterae, and she very much operated as a single, sexually free woman or, you know, goddess with a lot of agency, who functioned as a destabilizing force both in the Greek pantheon and among mortal humans, making both people and gods desire those who were off limits and throw over family, home, and other pre existing partnerships and relationships to pursue those desires.
1: So, in our last episode on the cult of Aphrodite, we discussed how Aphrodite rose from the sea, born of the castration foam after Uranus' naughty bits met with the business end of Cronus's sickle. After Aphrodite walked into the world and founded her home on Kypris, she decided it was time for her to take her place amongst the Olympian pantheon. Now, the timing here is so questionable. All the myths really contradict each other because they come down to us from different people and sources and times. So we're telling you a version of the story, and it's not the only version of the story, but it's the version we're going with. And it assumes some things like that Dionysus at this point was an Olympian, but Aphrodite wasn't. But Aphrodite definitely was an Olympian before Dionysus because Dionysus only became an Olympian when Hestia stepped down.
0: Just assume, if you know enough to have opinions about when Dionysus was and wasn't an Olympian, just assume here that the timeline is fucked.
1: That's mythology, though, and you know that. I mean, if you know enough to know that, you know that the mythological timeline is fluid, like something out of Doctor Who.
0: It is basically like Doctor Who. Don't expect it to make sense.
1: I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes.
0: It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
1: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me
0: from anything
1: yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
0: So, when Aphrodite arrived at Olympus, she was single and she was ready to mingle because she was the goddess of fluids mingling. She was a catch, you guys. She was a catch. And at this point in time, all the other male gods, including Dionysus, were already a part of the Pantheon. Like we said, just assume a wizard did it, okay? And this beautiful, stunning, sexy goddess appeared in their midst, and she was epic. She had no husband. She was her own mistress— She was captain of her own ship. Absolutely. And she wore this super sexy girdle that was probably a push-up girdle that drove people utterly crazy with lust and also accentuated the girls quite well. All of the male gods took one look at her and they were drooling, jaws on the floor, eyeballs bugging out like some kind of a cartoon. It was a little embarrassing allegedly all the female goddesses looked at her and were jealous and worried that she was going to cause problems for their marriages i mean maybe some of them were also dueling as well a little bit listen some of those goddesses like the ladies is my headcanon
1: that's also my headcanon number one and number two i think in the telling of this is it's very important for the- the tellers of this tale, to pit women against women the way women in ancient Greece would have been pitted against women with agency like Ketira.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So I think that they're setting up this dichotomy of women against other women, like traditional women who've elected to work within the patriarchy to attain their status and power, feeling pitted against women who've chosen a path outside of that. So... We side-eye this, to say the least.
1: But I wanted to include it because I do think that there is something there to be unraveled.
0: Oh yeah, it's an important part of the story and we have to call it out. So Aphrodite wasn't necessarily out to seduce every god and possibly some of the goddesses in sight, but she was an unencumbered woman. She was a Kyria. That meant she was her own master or mistress.
1: And there were other goddesses in the Greek pantheon who were unattached to men and their own mistresses, Hestia, Artemis, Athena, but for the most part, these goddesses were kind of part of the eternal virginity club, as Laura Olympus says, and they had sworn off men. That made them not as much of a threat to the patriarchal status quo. As an unmarried goddess who hadn't sworn off men, quite the opposite, who had free agency over her body and her desires and her sexual appetites, Aphrodite was to be feared.
0: I mean, I think there's something so interesting about how in the ancient Greek pantheon, they set up this whole paradigm where most of the women who are outside of the patriarchal men controlling women paradigm are women who've utterly sworn off sexuality, which makes them not a threat to the patriarchal family unit because they're not out there sexually available. I just think that's really interesting. Because actually, you can see um, ancient, Greek and Rome, ancient Greek and Roman culture doing that in real life, too, with different cults where women who were priestesses were required to be chaste.
1: Absolutely. And I think that it's this dichotomy of how women are able to have power and what they have to give up to have that power. And I mean, we saw this a lot in particular when we talked about Agrippina and the ancient World Stark family, how women at the highest levels were only able to wield their power through their sons or their husbands. Like, even though they had this status, they still had to work through men. And the only way women didn't have to work through men in a way was if they were a lot of times virgin priestesses.
0: Right. Like you could operate outside the patriarchy and you could live a life that was not controlled by men. But then you had to swear off sex. You couldn't have a sex life. You couldn't have a family at all. You couldn't have children. That's a big renunciation.
1: Let's get back to the mythology of it all. Here's the thing about Aphrodite. As much as she had agency over her own body and desires, she also had the ability to drive mortals, animals, and even gods wild with lust.
0: Unholy lust.
1: An unholy lust.
0: Tell me about it with that voice, gosh.
1: (laughs) I'm going to have no voice by the end of this episode.
0: I wonder if you actually are losing your voice. Have you been screaming a lot?
1: Just internally. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Just into the void would be my answer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, this was an unholy lust. A lust that they couldn't control. Throughout mythology, we see moments where gods and mortals are so overcome with lust that they do some pretty fucked up shit. Because, apparently, lust, or uncontrollable desire, is just that. Uncontrollable, even for the gods and the goddess in charge of whether or not you had these feelings, was a woman. And she was Aphrodite.
0: So when Aphrodite arrived on the Olympian scene, Hera, the goddess of marriages and unions, was not cool with Aphrodite being a stunningly attractive single lady who threatened those marriages and unions. She saw the way her, I don't know, fuck daddy husband Zeus drooled over Aphrodite. Can we refer to him as fuck daddy Zeus from now on? Because oh boy, that's an appropriate description. Oh
1: yeah, done.
0: Done. Fuck Daddy Zeus. And the way that Ares, her son, followed Aphrodite around like a lovesick puppy, not to mention the strange looks that Dionysus was giving her. And let's not talk about Poseidon. Poseidon embarrassed himself in front of Aphrodite on a regular basis. Constantly. It seemed that every single male god wanted to fuck Aphrodite to the point of distraction. God, you guys, could you rein it in just a tad? And... Hera was like, we have got to lock her down because this shit is getting dire up in here. There, what is <laughs> something about golden showers?
1: I'm gonna tell you, the shit was getting dire up in here. Like, let's talk about all the ways Zeus had done disgusting things in order to satiate his lust.
0: Oh, like he turned into a bull, he turned into a swan. He's regularly impersonating animals to get laid.
1: Yep, he's regularly impersonating mortals. And there was one time where like it really seems like he could not possibly get it on with this mortal woman what does he do he turns into a golden shower a shower of gold that just permeates into her room and then
0: he literally transformed into a golden shower think about it don't think about it don't think about it Don't listen to me. Terrible.
1: Exactly. Hera was like, enough is enough. I'm not dealing with this anymore. We have got to sort out the problem of Aphrodite and all this crazy lust.
0: All this lust she's inspiring just by being who she is and being in, I don't know, a 50-mile radius of... Gods.
1: Uh, Of course, Hera didn't understand that's not how lust works and it's a primal force and you don't get to lock it down.
0: And also, it kind of makes sense just historically because what is marriage supposed to do? It's supposed to lock down lust, right? And harness it for the sake of childbearing and inheritances.
1: Hera's like, if I can pull her into this fold of being married and being locked down and being part of the sanctity of marriage, part of the patriarchy. Yeah, if I can make Aphrodite part of the patriarchy via marriage, then maybe all this destabilizing, like, lust will go away. I mean, she had met Aphrodite. I don't know why she thought this would work.
0: Yeah, and Aphrodite was like, you know what, you guys? I am an outside cat. I do not want to be locked down. But if I had to be locked down, I'm here for Team Ares because that dude, he's my equal in every way, especially below the waist.
1: He knows how to work what he's got.
0: So this story comes to us in pieces. Fascinatingly, it's told and retold on ancient vases, and it's also in Pausanias. So according to Pausanias, Aphrodite's marriage happens because of a golden throne. It is not a toilet. Or is it a toilet? Is it in fact a toilet?
1: Is it a golden throne with a beautiful peacock motif? Because Hera's sacred animal was a peacock? I don't know.
0: I'm just picturing a toilet over
1: here because it's funny. I know, you're just picturing a, a toilet, and I'm like, how can I make a beautiful word picture?
0: So according to Pausanias, Aphrodite's marriage happens because of a golden throne. So follow along with us here. Hera had two sons with Zeus, right? Ares, the god of war, and Hephaestus, god of the forge and fire.
1: In some mythological versions, Hera had Hephaestus without Zeus. She reproduced asexually, and Hephaestus was solely the son of Hera, However, all these stories agree about one thing. Hera could not stand her son Hephaestus. And I'm not delving into Hera's asexual reproduction of Hephaestus because it's a whole nother rabbit hole. That fits a different thesis, which one day I will get to, but it does not fit this season. So the reasons why Hera disliked her son so much vary a lot. Some say that she couldn't stand him because he wasn't perfect like the other gods. Maybe because he was ugly, according to Olympian standards.
0: It just wasn't conventionally attractive in the most drop-dead gorgeous way.
1: Exactly. I don't know. Or it's possible because he was deformed. And usually what I see his deformity being in mythology is he had some kind of an interned or clubbed foot, which again, I don't think is a deformity. But that is how Hera felt. She was kind of a huge dick about this.
0: I mean, he was a blacksmith, so he had to have been really ripped, you know? Like, my headcanon is that Hephaestus was also a stone-cold hottie, just maybe a little bit more unconventionally attractive than the other gods.
1: First off, he was totally a stone-cold hottie. But second off, he's not a blacksmith yet. He's just a little imperfect baby.
0: I'm not talking about baby Hephaestus. I'm talking about full-grown Hephaestus.
1: I know, but can you imagine, like, just looking at your child and be like, not perfect, off a cliff?
0: I'm child-free. I'm the wrong person to ask that question, too.
1: (laughs) I know, but in mythology, this is kind of like we see so many children being exposed and, like, parents getting rid of imperfect children or girl children. And this is echoed here in how Hera treats her son.
0: I think in Sparta, it was, like, mandatory to expose children that had any kind of a quote-unquote blemish as they would
1: have seen it. Or if they were ginger. No, I I can't substantiate that.
0: (laughs) Can't substantiate, but possible. (laughs) Possible. I can't rule it out either. (laughs) So anyway, whatever the reason, in Hera's rage, she flung Hephaestus from Mount Olympus, breaking his legs and casting him out of the home of the gods. This brutal act caused massive injuries to his legs. And in some myth, this is where his disability comes from, is that he was just thrown off this cliff. And that meant for the rest of his immortal life, he walked with a limp and had beautiful crutches made of gold, which he absolutely made himself because that is his thing. So Hephaestus, understandably, was like, fuck this family, fuck these people, I'm so done with all of you. And he grew up on the island of Lemnos, where the marine nymphs and goddesses Thetis and Arenemy looked after him. He grew into his powers, which so happened to be making things and controlling fire. Hephaestus was a gifted blacksmith and craftsman, and he also made robots. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, people. Robots.
1: Well, and he made everything the Olympians used. He made their war chariots. He made their palaces. He made their jewelry, their armor. Everything they used, Hephaestus made. He was a real busy dude. Did he make Zeus' thunderbolt? I don't know that he made Zeus' thunderbolt, but he made Helios' sun chariot. He made robots. He made loads and loads and loads of stuff. Pretty much, if the Olympians used something in mythology, there's a possibility Hephaestus made it. And he was making all this stuff for people who really kind of were assholes to him.
0: He did not fire his clients, clearly.
1: No, and I I have thoughts about that because I do think that, like, there's a part of him that... I think, like to be busy, really enjoyed the process of creating things. Like, Hephaestus made Pandora. He made her out of clay.
0: Could you class Pandora as a robot?
1: I mean, if we did, she'd probably be like weirdly a sex bot, but I think she's supposed to be the first human, so no. Because she was a gift to Prometheus's brother, and by gift, we definitely mean kind of gift.
0: We mean sex robot.
1: Pandora, the first woman, was a sex robot. Shocker. <laughs> Anyway, Hephaestus saw a way to get back at his mother. He designed the most epic, beautiful, golden throne fit for the queen of the skies and the goddesses. It was epic with plumage that had a peacock and gold in the background. I'm just fan fictioning right now, but Hephaestus made it and I can't imagine how incredible it would be. Oh, my shiny, shiny magpie heart.
0: Not a toilet.
1: Definitely not a toilet. And Hephaestus sent this beautiful, epic, golden throne that just your mind your face would melt from looking at it up to Olympus and it had Hera's name on it and what did Hera do she took one look at the beautiful golden throne and thought I wonder how badass I'm gonna look sitting on this thing and then she just sat down and boom she was stuck to the golden throne invisible fetters that were so Small, they couldn't be seen by the godly or naked eye, held her tight to the throne. And everyone was like, hey, Hera, come on, get up. This isn't funny. We all kind of want to take a selfie with this epic throne. I mean, we're going to need to put up on the instas.
0: But Hera was not standing up, and everyone was like, why is she not standing up? It's my turn. So panic ensued. Hera was bound, and her powers were also bound. She was stuck to this throne and powerless, and no one could free her. There was only one person who could undo the magic-binding powers of the golden chair, and that person was Hephaestus. So, sensing a chance to kill two birds with one stone, fuck daddy Zeus offered the hand of Aphrodite in marriage to whoever could get Hephaestus to unlock his mother from her golden throne. Not asking Aphrodite for her thoughts on this at all, just up and offering her, because women are property!
1: Women are property, and at this point in time, Aphrodite is unmarried, so she would fall under the curios of the lead male of the Olympians, which would be Zeus. God, if fuck daddy Zeus was your curios, it would not be a good time for you.
0: So anyway, so Aphrodite was not down for this at all. She's like, wait, what? Who? What? Me? What? Did we discuss this? No, I'm an outside cat. I cannot be contained to one man nope, nope, you're going to get married to whoever happens to convince Hephaestus to release Hera from this chair. Aphrodite was like, okay, there's only one way I can see out of this. You know who's going to save my ass right now? It's going to be Ares if I get married to Aries, he's totally going to let me do whatever I want because Aries is also an outdoor cat. And he's just like, listen, as long as you're coming back to me, babe, you can, you can go out and you can do whatever you want. And so will I. And we'll just come together for beautiful, passion-filled days and nights somewhere, your place or mine, and then we'll go off again and do our own separate thing. It'll be great. Perfect. She's like the only person on this godforsaken mountain I could ever consider marrying is Aries because he's the only person who's going to let me be myself. So... She went to Aries and she's like, Listen, babe, you're the only one who's capable of getting Hephaestus to unbind his mom. So, could you just do that? And then we'll be married and it won't change anything between us. We could still both do our own thing, but we'll also be married and it'll be kind of great and we can have kids. And we're already having kids at the moment. So, what's really going to change? It's going to be great. And Aries was like, I'm 100% down. Two outside cats, getting married and continuing to be outside cats is exactly my dream relationship. So, Aries agreed to these terms. So he called up his kids, the personifications of fear and terror, and they all went down to Lemnos and paid Hephaestus a little visit. And let me tell you what, Ares was not able to strong arm, cajole, or frighten Hephaestus into returning to Mount Olympus. He applied as much pressure as he could possibly apply. And remember, I believe Ares is Hephaestus's older brother, so... It was all about the wet willies and the rug burns and all of that stuff and bullying nonsense. Ares really laid into it hard and Hephaestus was like, no, I refuse. Do your worst. So Ares had to return to Olympus, unsuccessful.
1: So finally, the patron god of our podcast, Dionysus, visited Hephaestus. And Dionysus was like, hey, I'm not Here to force you to go up to Mount Olympus and free your mom. I don't like her very much. Have you heard about all the awful shit she did to me? Oh, Thetis also helped raise you. I love Thetis. I also jumped into the scene. She protected me when I was having problems because your mom was being awful to me everywhere I went. Listen, let's open up a cask of wine and let's chat. Talk about our mommy issues yeah, we're going to go through our sheer trauma around Hera. And that's what they did. And when Hephaestus was drunk, Dionysus cleverly pointed out, you know, Hephaestus, if you just went up there and freed Hera, you could be Aphrodite's husband. And now let me just tell you a little bit about Aphrodite. Everyone loves Aphrodite. She is gorgeous. I know you haven't seen her But she is the type of woman who, if you did marry, everyone would look at you and be like, damn, Hephaestus, that's pretty good. You'd have respect.
0: Yeah, they'd be like, wow, damn, Hephaestus has a hot wife.
1: I mean, essentially, Dionysus here is being a fucking chaos monkey, and he's kind of putting forward the keys for a trophy wife, which I don't approve of. Dionysus is very problematic in places, and this is one of them.
0: A little bit of this is fan fiction.
1: Yeah, some of this is fan fiction. Also, Dionysus, as I said, did have an axe to grind against Hera.
0: He absolutely did. Dionysus is absolutely the dark horse of this particular myth.
1: He's got a little bit of chaos, like Loki, feel to him here.
0: He's a little bit chaotic neutral right now.
1: So, being utterly trashed and probably kind of horny, Hephaestus thinks that going to Olympus and freeing his mother was a great idea. So, riding on a donkey, which is a way of showing that you're humbled, you're here to make peace, being led by Dionysus, the two went straight up to Mount Olympus and freed Hera. And then suddenly, by the powers of Grace I mean fuck daddy Zeus. Hephaestus was engaged and then married to the most beautiful and desirable goddess of all the goddesses, the walking personification of sex herself. Aphrodite was not okay with this marriage. This wasn't what she'd signed up for. She had signed up for a marriage to Ares, or at least someone not Hephaestus. We don't even know if she'd met Hephaestus at this point in time. But a deal was a deal. And so Hera was freed from her golden chair, and Aphrodite was put into a golden prison as the wife of the god of fire and the forge.
0: So why this story, Jen?
1: So first off, Jenny, before we get into why this story, let's just take a moment and acknowledge the dark horse MVP of this story, Dionysus. He is another destabilizing figure amongst the Olympians, and you really see that super clearly here. You get the feeling that he sets up Hephaestus and Aphrodite's marriage as a way to just cause chaos and show the Olympians that you cannot contain your lust, your desires, and that also when you're hot-headed and drunk, you're bound to make some bad decisions. Dionysus, you always have to remember, is always trying to show that he's a destabilizing and powerful god. I think with him, there's always something to prove. And this story is kind of about him proving that like, yeah, lust will make you do crazy things. Let's see what happens when we add booze to the mix.
0: I love it. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, here's why we thought this story was necessary in the understanding of Aphrodite and her role as a goddess and as a stand-in for Greek women. So we're going to broaden it out here. The big thing for me here is about how scary and terrifying single women were in mythology and in real life, and how important it was for the stability of the Olympians to marry off Aphrodite. And not just marry off Aphrodite, but marry her to someone that none of the other male gods would view as a threat. Because the other male Olympians did not see Hephaestus as a threat to their masculinity. They did not understand anything about this dude. They didn't think he threatened their status.
1: No, even though he was super strong and buff and hot in his own way. Like, God, he was a blacksmith. Of course he was. So Hephaestus is is strong and clever and he's creative and he's all those things that, like,
0: those are all attractive qualities.
1: Yeah, and I think he is very, you know, I think he is very masculine, but I think that he was serving them and it put him in a weird role.
0: They might have seen him as like in sort of a servant kind of a role is what you're saying?
1: Possible. Well, I mean, he made everything that they used.
0: Craftsmen in ancient Greece weren't, weren't like high-status people, from what I understand, either. So there's that.
1: I think that's part of it, which is bizarre because they would not be able to exist or have the luxuries they have if not for Hephaestus.
0: I think a lot of craftsmen were enslaved people, realistically. So that's kind of what, what uh, I guess, what an ancient Greek person listening to this story might have been picking up here, just in terms of the references. This A lot of this is us, you know, conjecturing, but it's a thought. Um, anyway, so What I was telling you was that the other male Olympians didn't see Hephaestus as a threat to their masculinity. He was associated with low-status tasks like being a craftsperson, even though he was super good. He was strong. He was smart. He could make clever things. He was really creative. But he wasn't handsome. That was super important in Mount Olympus. They were all very looks-focused.
1: I bet he had a face that could tell stories for days. I'm still stuck on that body from being a blacksmith.
0: We're just going to objectify Hephaestus over here. That's what we're doing. He wasn't powerful in terms of godly powers, although he's probably really strong. He wasn't necessarily known for his virility. Not saying he not not saying anything about that one way or the other. He just wasn't particularly known for it.
1: No, look, he wasn't one of those gods who was going out and fucking everything that moved. He did have children. He wasn't infertile. He didn't have children with Aphrodite, but he was not like, fuck daddy Zeus or fuck daddy Poseidon or... Fuckboy Apollo
0: wasn't a fuckboy, and he wasn't a fuckdaddy. He was kind of seen as a as a safe choice, and who better to bind Aphrodite to than the safe
1: choice? And if Aphrodite didn't love her husband, if she wasn't happy, well, who cared? And here's the thing: Hephaestus made this call while drunk. We don't a hundred percent know that he would have made this call and bound himself to Aphrodite if he'd been sober. There's a little coercion on his part as well, but. The reality is, Aphrodite was married, and she was under the control of her husband. Her husband with the fiery temper and the ability to bind other gods who displeased him. Clearly, he could bind Aphrodite too, right? The problem of Aphrodite and her undeniable powers of unholy lust was sorted, right?
0: Well, I'm just going to say it, no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Of course not.
0: So actually Hephaestus was not the greatest husband like as soon as they got married he wasn't like making any kind of an effort to win Aphrodite over here you could say that Hephaestus was coerced into marrying Aphrodite or at least making this decision under the influence and maybe he woke up on the other side of the bed with Aphrodite and was like well clearly we are not suited bye
1: yeah and also it's possible Aphrodite just kept looking at him and sneering and being a real asshole to him because he wasn't what she thought of as physically beautiful and perfect, and she didn't want anything to do with him, that's also something that would turn him off.
0: Again, we're fanfictioning. But yeah, I think that what's pretty clear is that Hephaestus wasn't the most attentive husband. (laughs) He was consumed with the work he did. He was obsessed with making things. And he spent long, hot, sweaty hours at the forge just sweating. So much sweating. Buckets of sweat. And Aphrodite was like, wait, what the fuck? I am basically a forge widow now. I didn't even ask to marry this guy. This is all his idea as far as I know. And now he's totally ignoring me. Who ignores me? The nerve. I mean, okay, she didn't even really want to fuck this dude. They actually managed to find the one person Aphrodite does not want to fuck and married her to him. But also she's like, what am I going to do with all my spare time? All my time where I'm not allowed to leave Hephaestus' house because she's married and under the control of her husband, and remember, in ancient Greece, women weren't supposed to leave their men's houses, theoretically, and I'm not allowed to do my job, which was be the goddess of love, lust, attraction, and fertility. What am I supposed to do all day, says Aphrodite? I'm just, what, supposed to sit here in in Hephaestus' living room and, I don't know, knit socks? I swear to the gods, if anyone suggests taking up weaving, I am gonna lose my shit, she says. Yeah, she's like, that is
1: not what I do. I have a very particular skill set.
0: So Aphrodite did what we'd all do in that situation, right? She slid into Ares' DMs, and she's like, you up? That's it.
1: <laughs> that's all she, she, there was an eggplant and an, an up arrow, and that's it.
0: I think there's an eggplant and like maybe one of those squirty emojis and like a peach. That's it. So as soon as, Hephaestus left for his forge, she texted Ares, invited him around for a bit of stress relief because this stifling lifestyle was stressing her the fuck out. And that's basically how Aphrodite spent her days for a while. She waited for Hephaestus to go to work, because he always did, at the same time every day, he was really tied to his routine, she found it really annoying, and then she invited Ares over for a good time. Now all of this might have been fine if it wasn't for fucking Helios. Let me tell you something about Helios. (laughs) Helios was the titan of the sun. And Helios was always hanging around up there in the sky in his fucking sun chariot watching everybody masturbate. He's always peering into your window, peering through your roof because I guess he has x-ray vision. And he's just always looking for the dirtiest shit to spy on because Helios is a goddamn perv. So anyway, Helios, of course snuck into the bushes, or I guess he did this from the sky somehow with his x-ray vision, peeked into Hephaestus's house. He could have
1: done it through a skylight.
0: Right, so maybe there was a skylight. But however he did it, he peeked in and he caught an eyeful of Aphrodite and Ares going at it in Hephaestus's bed. So Helios is like, no, I got the really good gossip. And... He went straight to Hephaestus, and he spilled that motherfucking tea all over the place.
1: So Hephaestus was furious. Aphrodite had refused, refused to consummate their marriage. And sure, she didn't want to be his wife, and he wasn't being the worst in forcing himself on her. But did he have to fuck another guy in their bed while he was at work, making robots and other shit for the Olympians who didn't like him anyway? Like, really? Mostly sex robots. So this is what Ovid had to say about the event, and just so you all know, I've replaced the Roman names for the gods and goddesses with the uh, Greek ones. Ovid was Roman; he was a Roman poet writing at the end of the BCs and into the first century AD. And this is what he tells us happened next: "Quote, Helios, the sun, is thought to have been the first to see Aphrodite's adultery with Ares." Helios is the first to see all things. Shocked at the sight, he told the goddess's husband, Hephaestus, how he was cuckolded, where. Then Hephaestus's heart fell, and from his deft blacksmith's hands fell to the work he held. At once he forged a net, a mesh of the thinnest links of bronze, too fine for the eye to see. A triumph not surpassed by the finest threads of silk, or by the web the spider hands below the rafter's beams. He fashioned it to respond to the least touch or slightest movement, then, with subtle skill, arranged it round the bed. So when his wife lay down together with her paramour, her husband's mesh, so cleverly contrived, secured them both ensnared as they embraced. Straightway, Hephaestus flung wide the ivory doors and ushered in the gods. The two lay there, snarled in their shame. The gods were not displeased. One of them prayed for shame like that. They laughed and laughed. The joyful episode was long the choicest tale to go the rounds of heaven.
0: Okay, so let's just break this down for a second.
1: Oh, yes, please.
0: So when Hephaestus finds out that Aphrodite is cheating on him, he's brokenhearted, but he's also really fucking angry, goddammit, because he has a lot of issues around his family and his status as an Olympian, and he wants to lash out and bring the shame that he feels onto his wife. He wants to shame her and Ares for making him feel ashamed. He wants to bind them and humiliate them the way he humiliated his mom with the golden throne that was not a toilet. He wants to make them feel as powerless and exposed as he feels when catty-fucking Helios informs him of the affair because Helios is watching you masturbate. Look out. That's just, if you could just take away anything from this episode, just remember... (laughs) helios is watching you so like a normal person would i don't know how do you respond when your spouse is having an affair really ranges from dump the asshole to get some therapy i don't know but um not Hephaestus. like he definitely takes
1: a third path here yeah and his path is like i am good at one thing and that thing is revenge revenge through elaborate traps through elaborate traps, like, literally Aphrodite, look at what he did to his mother. What do you think he's gonna do when he catches you?
0: Anyway, Hephaestus does what he's good at. He creates an inescapable web and he lays his trap. And then, Hephaestus went off to work one morning, doubled back, and waited for Aphrodite and Ares to start getting up to what they get up to on a regular daily basis as soon as he leaves the house. And boom! Trap sprung. And Hephaestus is so proud of himself, he invites around his entire fucked up extended family to get a load of what he's caught in his net.
1: And because his family is pretty dysfunctional, they do not find this shameful at all. And not that what Aphrodite and Ares were doing was shameful, it's just like, the whole situation, you should just be like, oh god, why am I involved in this?
0: They did not react the way Hephaestus was hoping that they would react.
1: Exactly. Because his family is not the Greek patriarchy in the same way that we think of them. His family here isn't laughing with Hephaestus. They are laughing at him. And because there's a lot of fuckboys and fuckdaddies here, some of them are even really turned on. Every one of these horrible guys wants to be so lucky as to be invited into Aphrodite's bed. And Aphrodite and Ares are still kind of getting it on while they're in the net because they actually conceive Harmonia while they're trapped in this net by Hephaestus. Because they cannot stop and they will not stop. And also, ooh, bondage, voyeurism. I mean, this is some interesting shit. Quite kinky. I love the fact that this just does not break their stride at all. Like, they did not miss a stroke. Exactly. They're like, well, I'm not done yet, so let's just finish this up. We're stuck here anyway. (laughs) It's all material. We're just going to use it. (laughs) So the female goddesses are supposed to be shocked and appalled. Shocked shocked and appalled. But as I've said earlier, I side-eyed this so hard, because once you see the tools of the patriarchy, you can't unsee them. And to have the female goddesses being shocked and appalled and casting shame on Aphrodite serves to show how deviant and wrong she is behaving. And when you really get down to it, if the female goddesses were casting any shade at Aphrodite, I suspect it's because they envied her freedom and her agency to take a lover and fuck him in her marital bed. Because almost all of the married goddesses weren't happily married. And I'm sure many of them probably wouldn't have minded having a tryst and throwing it in their husbands' faces. Because fuck you, fuck Daddy Zeus. But also this kind of sends a message to the other women in the room about what happens when you step out of line. Like, this is all about reinforcing patriarchal standards
0: yeah patriarchy is all about women policing other women so Hephaestus is furious that his family is laughing at him rather than with him he's so mad that he doesn't want to let Ares and Aphrodite out of his net and again it's an unbreakable net that only Hephaestus can unbind and Hephaestus is like look Aphrodite is cheating on me I gave Zeus a dowry for my marriage to Aphrodite and I want it back I want it all back cheating is grounds for divorce And you owe me essentially the bride price that I paid for her, which is a little weird because I think that the way that it actually worked in Greek society was that the woman's family paid the dowry. But we're just going with this Hephaestus paid Zeus to marry Aphrodite here.
1: I suspect it depends on where in the country you're talking about and thinking about Aphrodite and Helen of Troy like Aphrodite was the Helen of Troy of the Olympians, right? So like everybody wants her. So probably they did have to pay something for her hand.
0: Yeah, and, and this may be, you know, something that's based on an older paradigm that predates classical Athens as well. I don't know. This is all a question. But anyway, the point here is that everybody is laughing at Hephaestus because his little net trick has backfired, and he's humiliated, and Aphrodite is just not missing a stroke. She is carrying on fucking because she doesn't give a shit, and the important thing here is her orgasm. Get it, girl. Get it! So... Hephaestus decides that he is not going to let the goddess of love or the god of war out of his goddamn net until he gets his bride price back and until someone assures him that Aphrodite and Ares are going to be punished like they deserve. He knows how this is going to go. The second he opens up that net, Ares is going to peace out to his ancestral land of Thrace and Aphrodite is going to go back to Cyprus and she's going to go to the spa and no one will do anything to assuage Hephaestus's
1: honor because honor was at stake! Honor was at stake. Thank you, Colin. He loves to just chime in and let us know that. So, Poseidon tells Hephaestus to be reasonable. The world cannot live without love and war. It kind of makes the world go around when you think about it. Okay, well, like, not literally. But, you know, it's what shapes and moves the lives of mortals.
0: Can we pause for a second? If, like, Poseidon, the dark hippocamp, is telling you to be reasonable... You've just gone off the cliff here in your life.
1: Well, I think for Hephaestus, his problem is like, what's reasonable to you isn't necessarily reasonable to me. You're asking me to do something that, you know, will mean that once I've done it, I lose out on everything. I lose out on having this leverage, which will mean that I'm able to make my case for what I deserve, which is a divorce. I deserve a good settlement. And I deserve to be left the fuck alone by everyone on this god mountain.
0: I deserve to be compensated for my suffering.
1: Exactly. So dark hippocamp Poseidon promises to vouch for Aphrodite and Ares and tells Hephaestus that if they're set free, he'll make sure that Hephaestus gets everything he's demanding. I promise. So Hephaestus sets Aphrodite and Ares free. And of course, they peace out to Cyprus and Thrace. Does he get his bride price back? We don't know. But we do know that Aphrodite and Hephaestus essentially dissolve their marriage here. We don't know if it's an official divorce, but they no longer live together in a combined household. And Aphrodite sets up her own household and once again becomes her own mistress.
0: So why is it important to include this story?
1: I think this story of Aphrodite's affair and how awful her marriage was probably rang true for a lot of women in ancient Greece and Rome. Aphrodite is a powerful woman who was forced into an arranged marriage to a man she doesn't love, a man she actually can't stand. She loses her freedom and is forced to remain in Hephaestus' house, unable to leave, unable to do meaningful goddess work. Essentially, she's his prisoner. In ancient Athens, it was generally expected for high ranking women to never physically leave the house, although How often this was explicitly followed versus being the feminine ideal is unclear.
0: Yeah, so how does she take her life back? She shows her husband that she cannot be constrained or bowed or broken by their marriage. She's going to love who she loves. She's going to do what she wants to do. Aphrodite is just going to Aphrodite. And if he won't let her leave the house, if he keeps her a prisoner, she's going to open the door to her cage and she's going to invite the lovers in. She's like, listen, if I can't go out, I'm going to order
1: in, babe. Do you know who we see this with? We see this with Claudius and Messalina. Because literally, Messalina lets her lovers come into the Imperial Palace. And she's constantly cheating on Claudius there. All of her lovers stream in and stream out. And for the most part, Claudius is kind of okay with it or turns a blind eye to it. Or maybe doesn't know, but I think he probably turned a blind eye.
0: Or maybe he's emasculated by it, depending on who's telling the story.
1: But I also think, like, he's much older than her. I feel like he's in his late 50s and she's probably in her 20s or early 30s. Like, they don't have as much in common in the bedroom, potentially, at this point in their lives. And as long as she's not doing anything to embarrass him too much, he's like, well, I have important work to do, like, running the place. Just try not to be an asshole.
0: Number one, you have to take all those stories with a grain of salt because people writing about Claudius and Messalina were trying to demonize them. But also, it's kind of this trope about a guy with a disability who has this rapacious younger wife that he can't satisfy, who's sleeping with everyone but him. Like, that seems to be a thing that happens in the literature and in the mythology. And it's, it's almost like the Roman writers were basing their characterization of Claudius and Messalina on Aphrodite and Hephaestus, in a way.
1: Yeah. And because it's Rome and the patriarchy is strong... Messalina eventually loses her head. She doesn't get to be a free woman again.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, the message there is a lot harsher. We talk about this in Agrippina and the Wolf Girl, and I believe, if I remember right, it's been a while, what happened to Messalina was not that she just got to be an outside cat and have lovers. What happened was that she was basically hounded into taking her own life. Like, women who actually tried to do what Aphrodite is doing in this myth probably did not fare that well. So this story about Hephaestus and Ares and Aphrodite to the ancient Greeks would have been scandalous and hilarious. We see it recounted by Homer in the Odyssey. It's a funny tale. A hilarious tale for children. An uplifting tale. About a man who is cuckolded by his wife, who thinks he's being clever by trapping his adulterous wife in a net, but who just ends up making more of a fool of himself. Hephaestus might get his bride price back for proving that his wife is having an affair. A little bit unclear, he may not have even gotten that. But he also loses some of his dignity in the process. And there's another interesting thing that I can point out here to connect this to the history. Punishments for adultery in the ancient classical Greek world, specifically in Athens, but also in other places in the Greek world, were often tied to shame. There's some record that people who committed adultery in ancient Greece were publicly shamed in ways such as being forced to ride a donkey through the city, being made to wear transparent clothes and stand in the marketplace in them for a long time having a radish shoved up your ass, that's a thing that appears in the ancient sources, all kinds of stuff that involves shaming the adulterous couple. And the takeaway for me with the Hephaestus story is that it really does highlight Hephaestus' shame specifically because Aphrodite and Ares are not ashamed. Hephaestus is ashamed, and he's trying to displace his shame onto the adulterous couple. And I kind of wonder if that wasn't what was behind real-life public shaming, punishments for adultery, like the man who felt shamed because his wife feels like she needs to get satisfaction outside of their marriage, essentially maybe making him feel emasculated, trying to displace his own shame on the couple that is committing adultery.
1: I absolutely agree with you, and that's part of the reason I really wanted to include this myth, because I think that that is what we're seeing. There's that great line that we had in Ovid, then Hephaestus's heart fell, and from his death, blacksmith hands fell to the work he held he's working he's been told this and he's so heartbroken he's so upset about it that he drops his work on the floor it's not just that he's been cuckolded. it it's not just that they've shamed him in his bed they've also really hurt him and I feel like probably this is one of those ways in which you know men who didn't necessarily know how to deal with their emotions were able to get some kind of satisfaction on their wives and their feelings when this happened to them
0: Absolutely, because I doubt men in ancient Greece who had this happen to them were super deft with dealing with their feelings.
1: I mean, who's deft with dealing with your feelings about it in a healthy way when it happens in their in modern world? No one is.
0: And there is the urge to humiliate and malign the adulterous couple publicly in modern times when you're cheated on. People do things like, I don't know, take up billboards or hold up signs in the airport saying, like, you cheating asshole, get back on the plane or whatever.
1: It exists now, it existed then, and it repeats. And it becomes humorous in this incident because Hephaestus is the one everyone laughs at. But in reality, in the way that the actual culture worked, they wouldn't necessarily be laughing at the person who was cheated upon. They'd be laughing at the cheaters and they'd be jeering at the cheaters because they're the ones who've been publicly shamed.
0: I mean, maybe, or maybe they'd be making assumptions about the masculinity of the cuckolded person.
1: It's so complicated and it's so dark. So why else did I include this? Because I wanted to also talk about what happened to Aphrodite. She, through her cheating, gets her liberty back. After this story, she is no longer tied to Hephaestus for the most part. It's fuzzy, but for the most part. She never remarries. She has a long-term affair with Aries, but she never becomes his wife. And I think there's a reason for that. As an unmarried woman, she retains her power and agency. She's seen what married life looks like and she will never go back. She might love Aries, but she doesn't want him calling the shots on her life. They fight too much. To me, this looks a lot like what we learned from our sex worker episodes. Women who were married, we set up in a lot of ways to fear unmarried women. They're supposed to fear that ability to move and navigate the world with a freedom that they don't have. And Aphrodite, as an unmarried woman, with a lot of agency and a lot of power, is the most scary woman of all.
0: Like, my take on this, and this might be me doing some fan fiction here, is that the one thing that can kill Aphrodite's unkillable libido is the marriage bed.
1: Yeah, and there are times where she does seduce Hephaestus. I think it is when she goes to him and asks him to make armor for Aeneas. And he does it, and it's like she went and seduced him.
0: She will not be forced. She'll sleep with Hephaestus if it's her choice. But she will not be coerced into it. She will not be forced. She will not be raped. Like, that is a big deal about Aphrodite.
1: I think you're right. I think the thing to really take home here is Aphrodite does not want anyone to have any say or any control over what Aphrodite does.
0: Yeah, but I also see in her, like, there's a little bit of feminist subversion here. She's kind of representing a tale about women's sexuality that is like, women are sexual beings outside the marriage bed. In fact, the marriage bed kills sexuality. And I'm not saying, I'm not making a judgment about married people's sex lives here. There is a study that says women, not men, struggle harder with monogamy realistically and I'm gonna put that in the show notes because it's actually really interesting but I think there's a universal truth here that Aphrodite is kind of secretly telling women in her audience it's like yeah you're right if you're not feeling desire for your husband who you have been coerced or forced to marry because a lot of women were back in those times that's because that's not how women's sexuality works I'm the embodiment of women's sexuality and that's not how my sexuality works it works when it's consensual
1: Yeah, and I think that's why, to me, it was so important we cover these myths because it's so destabilizing and it's such a different way of looking at this goddess who does not conform to the traditional patriarchal standards of the time. And I think the fact that she exists and the fact that she has agency and the fact that a lot of times she is just there to Fuck shit up and do what she wants is so important to point out.
0: But also, you know, when you're in a relationship, sometimes there are people you're attracted to who you can't you feel like you can't say yes to because you're married and that would go against your agreement with your spouse, which obviously we think cheating is bad, you know. But on the other hand, it's like, well, woman's libido is going to want what it wants people's libido is going to want what it wants. And Aphrodite kind of embodies the dark horse desires of that and following those desires wherever
1: they lead. Yeah. And I mean, women's sexuality in ancient times, a lot of the reasons they were kept inside is like women were rapacious sexual creatures who needed to get it on.
0: That was the stereotype back then. Yeah.
1: It was the stereotype. You see it in um, the Lysistrata where the women of two cities, I can't remember if it's Sparta and Athens, it's two different cities get together and they're like we're gonna not have sex with our husbands until they agree to stop going to war and both cities agree and the comedy is that the men find it really difficult but so do the women like they're all like very sexual creatures who definitely want to get it on
0: yeah i think you know in later times in western culture at least victorian culture kind of erased that in women and like kind of set women up as like you know sexually pure and the gatekeepers of sex and, you know, desire was something that men had and women kind of just gave in to their husbands and stuff. That's like later baggage. That's how I read that.
1: So I couldn't talk about Aphrodite and not mention one of the most famous stories about her, The Judgment of Paris. This is about her ability to shape and terrorize the world with her agency and her unholy lust.
0: Unholy lust.
1: I'm just going to say it like that forever.
0: So here's the brief version of the Judgment of Paris. At the wedding of Thetis and Peleus, Achilles' parents, and this was absolutely not a consensual wedding, Thetis was not on
1: board. No, this was so non-consensual, it was...
0: It was a bullshit wedding, Kind of a rabbit hole. We're not going down it, but just so you know. So all the gods and goddesses were invited to this absolute goddamn sham of a wedding. Except one person, and that one person was Ares. Ares was the goddess of strife. And wherever she turned up at a party, things went sour real quick. She was a bummer at parties. So her invite got lost in the mail. Whoops. So Ares was pretty pissed about that. She's like, I don't understand why you guys aren't inviting me to things. I don't get it. And so, she did what she did best. She set about causing some strife, showed up at the wedding uninvited, and into the middle of the wedding feast, she threw an epic golden apple, which said, To the Fairest, on it. And them's fightin' words in the ancient world. Three goddesses immediately started vying for this apple like it was Fight Club. It was embarrassing. And those three goddesses were Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena. They all felt that they deserved this golden apple. Every other god and goddess in that feast just noped right the fuck out. They're like, I don't want anything to do with this. This is bullshit. They were not going to be in the middle of judging a beauty pageant between these three goddesses, any of which could totally fuck up their life if they did not pick them. So Zeus, seeing this conflict, fuck daddy Zeus, decided that he was going to hold on to this apple until he could find a suitable judge. You know, somebody disposable. Who It doesn't matter what the spurned goddesses do to this guy for reasons. Essentially, Zeus really wanted there to be a Greco-Trojan war. I guess he was bored with just humanity in general and needs something new to binge because they didn't have HBO back then. He needed like a good long meaty series that just goes for 10 seasons that he could really just binge and sink his teeth into. That's what he wanted. And he was going to look for a judge that was going to somehow give him that.
1: So Zeus found a lowly shepherd named Paris and was like, That dude is going to decide the fate of the world. That 19-year-old dude is going to do it.
0: I can't imagine how this could possibly go wrong.
1: Oh, I think Zeus was just thinking, I can't imagine how this could possibly go right, bring it on. So Hermes brought Paris to a mountain where Zeus, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena were waiting for him, and they each put their cases forward for why they should be the recipient of the golden apple. So I'm quoting from Ovid here, and again, uh, he was Roman, and I've, but for simplicity's sake, I have changed the names so that they are Greek, so it's easier to follow, but bear in mind, Ovid would have originally used the Roman versions of these names. So, Ovid, in his Heroides, in his letter from Paris to Helen, tells us, quote, Lay aside thy fear. The winged herald Hermes said to me, Thou art the arbitrator of beauty. Put an end to the strivings of the goddesses. Pronounce which one deserves for her beauty to vanquish the other two. I mean, no. Paris, no, run, run, hide.
0: Any dude should know that this is a terrible idea. You know what? Everyone's equally beautiful. Go with that. Unless you're dating one of them, in which case, whoever you're dating is your fucking queen.
1: So we're going to continue with this quote because it, it gets better. So Paris is saying, And lest I should refuse, he laid command on me in the name of Zeus, and forthwith, through the paths of either, betook him toward the stars. So he's like, before he could even say anything, Hermes is like, Zoop, we're going. Zeus's orders, so my heart was reassured, and on a sudden, I was bold, nor feared to turn my face and observe them each of winning all were worthy, and I, who was to judge, lamented that not all could win, but none the less, already one of them pleased me more, and you might know it was she by whom love is inspired, great is their desire to win. they burn to sway my verdict with wondrous gifts. Hera, Zeus's consort, loudly offers thrones, his daughter, might in war. I myself waver, and can make no choice between power and the valorous heart. Sweetly, Aphrodite smiled. Paris, let not these gifts move thee, both of them full of anxious fear, she says. My gift shall be of love, and beautiful Leda's daughter, Helen, more beautiful than her mother, shall come to thy embrace." She said, and with her gift of beauty equally approved, retraced her way victorious to the skies.
0: So let's just pause and break this down. Hera offers Paris thrones, not toilets.
1: Not golden toilets.
0: Every time someone says a throne, I picture a toilet. It's a sickness. I don't know. Anyway, what she offers Paris, power, kingship, respected family line. She offers him the chance to be venerated and revered. Athena offers Paris victory and valor and success on the battlefield. She offers him a chance to be an epic hero. And what does Aphrodite offer him? She offers him the love of the hottest mortal woman on the fucking planet. And you all know that dudes only want power and kingship and victory and valor so that they can get chicks. Like, we all know that. Like, most of them. Some dudes are not interested in chicks. Some dudes are interested in the gentleman callers. <laughs> but... Love. Let's say they they all want love.
1: Yeah. And part of having power and part of being an epic hero is yeah to be able to get the person that you love to like you in some ways.
0: Absolutely. Like, I think that what Aphrodite is picking up on is she's just like, I'm just going to cut out the middleman here. I'm just going to offer you what you really want.
1: And I also think what she sees in Paris is like...
0: He's a guy who likes a shortcut. He doesn't want to do all that work to be a king or a hero. No, he just wants the sexiest lady in the room to just worship him. So Paris, he's 19. And obviously, he chooses love, by which we mean he chooses his dick. Of course he does. He doesn't care about being a king. His whole life he's been a shepherd, tending to his flock, robbing people for clothes, just in general getting by on bravado and brute force and whatever it is that shepherds survive on. I don't know, sheep milk. The point is that Paris is not interested in being a great warrior or a king. What is the use of honor? Honor hasn't kept the wolves from his door or from his flock. Heroes might get all the stories told about them, but they also had short lives and a lot of privilege. Stuff Paris didn't have growing up. But love... Being beloved by the most beautiful woman in the room, he gets that. He understands that. And with a gift like that, well, who would want anything else? Right? Well,
1: quite. And there's a lot more to this story, which we will be covering in our Helen of Troy episode. But Aphrodite's victory here is the catalyst for a war that will forever change the lives and the course of Greek mythology. And again, it's all about Aphrodite who has destabilized this. So essentially, this is Aphrodite at her most powerful. She literally changes the fate of the world based on a dude's boner. On this act of Paris
0: offering the apple to Aphrodite instead of Athena and Hera, cities will fall. A ten-year war will start. Swaths of great heroes, named men, picked men will die in the battlefield and bleed out on the beach. Heroes will rise and fall, and the gods will make war alongside men. It'll be epic. That's basically the plot of the Iliad.
1: It'll be gods against gods, yeah. It's wild. So Aphrodite proves that not only love or lust is the most beautiful and deadly thing. It also is what shapes and moves the world, and it's something that gods and men struggle to control.
0: Aphrodite in this story shows that while Hera and Athena might offer the better gifts to Paris, the only thing that really matters is lust. Lust, kids. Because because being a great warrior, undefeated in battle, being a respected king with lots of kids and wealth, I mean, that's all fine. But the thing that really moves empires, the thing that really shapes the world for the ancient Greeks and literally everybody else is love, by which we mean lust.
1: Love and lust are two forces that make people do things that you would never think Think you do like people do a lot of things for people they love in a platonic fashion that is completely shaped by that love
0: well yeah but i don't think we're talking about platonic love shaping the whole world and the fate of empires and stuff here we're talking about boners jen
1: (laughs) we are talking about boners this is the season of boners
0: we could be including lady boners in this absolutely anyway it's paris's lust for helen I can't stop saying it that way, that causes him to choose Aphrodite, and it's Helen's lust for Paris that causes her to run off with him, reject her husband and family, escape the patriarchy, and basically start the Trojan War. Lust fuels the conflict that shapes mythological history and ultimately is the undoing for the Trojan people. You could say, and I have said this in the past, usually after a few dark and stormies, that the entire Trojan War was started by a woman choosing to have sex with someone she chooses rather than accepting that choice being made for her. I mean, you can also make the argument that Aphrodite made the choice for her.
1: And that men could not handle a woman making that choice. Yes, you could also say that Aphrodite made that choice for her, But you could go further back and say, but didn't Aphrodite originally make the same choice Helen made?
0: So that is the story of Aphrodite, goddess of courtesans, walking embodiment of orgasm, she who will not be chained, will not be married, and will not be bound. Our lady of the castration foam, whose every step shakes the foundations of patriarchy to its roots.
1: But Aphrodite isn't exactly a feminist icon. As much as her very existence was a challenge to the patriarchy, sometimes she did things that reinforced it as well. Like Athena, Hera, and other goddesses, Aphrodite could be a tool of the patriarchy, and no story shows that better than the one of Helen of Troy. And how exactly Aphrodite messed with her. But that is a story for another episode.
0: So that's it for this week. Join us in another week for the next installment in whatever we're talking about next. Might be Helen of Troy, but actually I think it isn't. I think that comes later. You're just going to have to wait.
1: Yeah, and it definitely won't be Aphrodite's children because that comes later. It's tied into sex magic.
0: But patience is its own kind of passion, as Our Lady of the Castration Foam teaches us.
1: Absolutely. It has its own sweet, sweet rewards.
0: That's right. In the meantime, check us out on social on Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram.
1: And check out our Patreon. We've got extra episodes on the Patreon as well as a whole other podcast at this point, which is kind of drunk mythology featuring Liv Albert and some other famous authors and podcasters. And it's a lot of fun. It's real boozy. We get real silly. Check it out.
0: So we have some Patreon members to thank, Jen, don't we?
1: We do. Blanket
0: statement. Apologies for anybody whose name that we mispronounced. It's definitely going to happen. We struggle with words.
1: We'd like to thank Logan.
0: Just Logan. Charlotte Wallace.
1: Genevieve.
0: Just Genevieve.
1: Rachel Dent.
0: Becca Royal Gordon. Chris. Just Chris. Krista Taubert.
1: Jeffrey Thompson.
0: Anastasia Gilday. And Emma Griffith. Thank you so much for your support. We could not do this podcast without you.
1: Thank you, and we will see you next week. Whoa.
0: (laughs) I can't believe we're weekly. I still can't believe it. (laughs)